The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio with your host, Beth Green. This is James Maynard, your co-host. Today's topic, Inside Capitalism. What it's like to live in 21st century America, a conversation with Professor Richard Wolff and you. What is it like to grow up in a nation dominated by chain stores, multinational corporations, scarce, well-paid manufacturing jobs, a culture of money and economic anxiety? What's it like to live in a society where about 80% of the population lives in urban clusters? What's it like to grow up inside 21st century American capitalism? What do we tend to value? How do we see ourselves in our world? What are our fears? How does capitalism shape our psyches and our lives? You're invited to share your story, but first, we will be interviewing economist Professor Richard Wolff about how capitalism has been changing for more than 50 years. For blacks, women, gays, workers, and others, there may have been no good old days, but there were jobs and there was more security. Today, capitalism is a different bird. So let's hold the spotlight on capitalism as it is now, and let's talk about what it feels like to live inside its belly. Stay tuned and call in as well. This is our story. Let's tell it. And now, here's Beth. Hi. Welcome, everybody. We're so, I'm so happy to be back. We were gone last week. I hope you noticed. And uh, we're actually, James and I are going to be off again next week, but we'll still have another great show. But we're here now, and we're here with Professor Wolf, who can only be with us for about a half an hour. So we're going to be asking him, after we do our news of the inner revolution, to talk about how capitalism has changed so that we can then talk about what it's like being in this world and how it shapes our psyches. But first, we have the always incredible, uh, often depressing, and sometimes uh, in, enlightening and uh, illuminating and happy news of the inner revolution. Take it away, James. Okay. For those people who still insist that there is no real discrimination against women, and we hope you listened to last week's show on International Women's Day. If not, please do. Here's an amazing story from the WashingtonPost.com, March 31st. Five key members of the U.S. women's soccer team file wage discrimination. The complaint is against the U.S. Soccer Federation to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, alleging wage discrimination, citing USFF figures from last year showing that they were paid nearly four times less than men's players, despite generating much more revenue. They happen, to have, they happen to have won the Olympic gold medal in soccer. And speaking of, okay, so what do you think about that? And, and so on to our next story. Speaking of sports, just to keep you abreast of the continuing saga of big sports league versus reality, here's a story submitted by Christine Benton, our producer. It's from WashingtonPost.com, March 29th. Concussions, a bigger concern for NHL bosses than they say, documents show. National Hockey League officials internally acknowledged in emails the connection between brain trauma suffered during hockey fights and personal tragedies stemming from depression in a class action lawsuit brought against the NHL by more than 100 former players. 
These internal emails contradicted the league's public comments, which have served to downplay the sports danger. The players are fighting for enhanced medical care, greater player safety, and assistance for damaged former players. Now, here's another related story. We've been covering the story of concussions in football through these many months. Now, as many of you know, the New York Times published an article disclosing that the NFL used flawed research to deny the impact of head injuries on football players. Well, the NFL decided to tackle the New York Times. Here's a quick story from the Associated Press, March the 29th. NFL demands retraction of New York Times concussion story. A story that called the league's concussion research flawed and likened the NFL's handling of uh, head trauma to the tobacco industry's response to the dangers of cigarettes. The league said it was defamed by the Times. <laughs> the NFL also the issued poor a... NFL, oh, right? poor NFL. Oh, poor NFL. It hurt their feelings. <laughs> <laughs> the NFL also issued, issued a veiled threat of legal action. I guess the emperor doesn't like it when the New York Times says he's not wearing any clothes. These, stories, these sports stories demonstrate how you can avoid reality just so long. Here's a different kind of story that is showing that reality is catching up to us again. It's about the impact of our energy policies, regardless of the denial of elected officials and others. It was submitted by Christine Benton, our producer, and it's from the WashingtonPost.com, March the 28th. Seven million Americans are at risk of man-made earthquakes due to the pumping of tremendous amounts of chemical-laden wastewater into deep wells, a practice associated with fracking to extract subsurface shale oil and gas. This moves the earth and results in earthquakes. The places most vulnerable are in the central United States. So for those of you who think you can escape earthquakes by leaving California, guess again. But more important, we are seeing the results of denying reality. And speaking about reality, for those of us who still want to believe that our government and corporations are the tooth fairy fighting for the poor and oppressed, here's a, st here's a story from Christine, our producer. It's from a CNN report from March the 23rd. Nixon's war on drugs targeted black people. One of Richard Nixon's top advisors and a key figure in the Watergate scandal of the Vietnam War era has revealed that the war on drugs was created as a political tool to fight blacks and hippies. And it wasn't just hippies, it was the anti-war movement as well. We're going to be following up on this story in a future show, but don't let Beth get started on this topic because she lived through those times and she says it was obvious to all the people in the movement at that time. Well, now for some good news. Let's start with one submitted to us by Tracy. It's from The Independent, March the 15th. It demonstrates that there is some spreading consciousness about waste, global warming, and human suffering. Here it is. Italy is to change the law to make all supermarkets to give unsold food to the needy. This law will make supermarkets donate their waste food to charities, just as the French have introduced a bill in February which bans supermarkets from throwing away or spoiling unsold food. We are happy to see more and more of us looking at the wasteful ways we utilize resources on our planet. And finally, this will be a real shocker, a pleasant shock. It's from MSN.com, March the 30th. A poll, a recent poll, shows that 52% majority of Republicans support a path to citizenship for undocumented immigrants. And by the way, 50% of those were conservative Republicans. And that includes people whose self-identity, yeah, is conservative. Of course, Democrats support a path to citizenship at an even higher rate. Are these candidates out of touch? Beth? 
Well, it's wild, isn't it? Uh, today, we, because of time constraints, we didn't go into detail in any of these news stories, but we were hit with so many stories, we just wanted to throw these out. So you could go check it out later if you wanted to. But it's a crazy world. And, you know, we're really beginning to wake up. I mean, if the hockey players are suing the National Hockey League, right? So that means that people are awakening People realize that there's a problem. People are realizing that there's problems with the, our energy policy, global warming, you know, uh, the, the situation of undocumented workers and how that undermines the whole working class because they don't get decent wages. You know, we are waking up. So that kind of gives me a lift. So with no further ado, uh, we would love to have Richard Wolf, Professor Wolf, uh, join us. We interviewed him, I don't know, a month or two ago about socialism and capitalism and cooperatives and what's going on in our world and what the alternatives are. And we talked about the difference between democracy, which is a political social system, and capitalism, which is an economic system. And today, I'd love to pick... Professor Wolf's brain about how life has changed. Because like I, we said in our introduction, you know, when I was growing up many moons ago, there was a baker and a butcher and a fishman and a produce guy, right? Now there's a supermarket. Then it went for, it was a supermarket to there was a supermarket chain. And today, you know, you go, every town in America looks the same except for maybe some of the little, uh, you know, you know, what the trees look like. Uh, it's a different world. And uh, there's a lot to talk about, about how it feels to live in this world, the insecurities we have now and the insecurities we've always had. But first, let our professor catch us up on what's been happening in capitalism. It's not the same when you have like a free enterprise where there's a woman in Africa who's like has a micro loan and is trying to do her little thing, right? Versus some megalopolis, uh, giant corporation that has so many holding companies, it doesn't even know what it owns. That is, and we all call it all capitalism, don't we, Richard? Welcome yes, to our show. <laughs> so <laughs> this is a big topic to throw uh, at you, but what can you tell us? Well, I think that the, the broad outlines are what I can talk about. The way that capitalism has changed in the most dramatic way over the last 30 to 40 years, uh, basically since the 1970s. And let me explain it this way. For most of the history of the United States, from the time of our revolution up until the 1970s, we had a very lucky and a very efficient, profitable capitalism. We had really everything we needed. Uh, the Europeans who came to the United States um, ethnically cleansed the people they found here, took over the land. Uh, it was a land of wonderful soil quality, of ample rivers, two coastlines west and east, that gave you the ability to trade with the rest of the world. It was really a rich, rich place. Uh, and the Europeans who came, uh, came with certain technology. They knew how to use the rivers. They knew how to grow things. They knew how to manufacture. They really had everything they, they needed, with one exception. They didn't have workers. The Native Americans, as I say, were basically... 
uh, eliminated by, by the Europeans who came, and that got rid of the only people who might have been a labor force. The Europeans who came all wanted to be either farmers or little business people. Um, as we used to say when I was a child, all chiefs, no Indians. And that was a fundamental problem of our economic system, which we solved in two ways. In the northern and what eventually became the Midwest and the West of the United States, we solved the problem by an endless series of waves of immigration. We got Europeans to come here in huge numbers uh, by offering basically a simple deal. We would pay, that is we here in the United States, higher wages, enabling a higher standard of living than Polish people or German people or French people or Italian people and so on, uh, higher standard of living than they could hope to achieve back in the old European countries. And so they came in vast waves for a, for a hundred years or longer. Uh, and it worked. What they found here were jobs. They found a successful growing capitalism that gave them work and that gave them rising wages. Because, you know, not only did you have to have high wages to get the folks to come from Europe, but you had to keep raising the wages because if you didn't, they would come to the coastal cities, Boston, New York, Philadelphia, and so on, and then quickly head to the interior where there was all this free, because the Native Americans were gone, free land that they could get access to and take up the farming, which is what most of them knew in Europe anyway. In the southern part of the United States, the labor shortage problem, because that's what it was, was solved by forcing Africans, the slave trade, uh, to come here and to work in the cotton fields and the tobacco fields. And so we solved this country's labor shortage in these two different ways. Rising wages in the north, midwest, and west through immigration and slavery uh, in the south. Now let's fast forward. This worked really pretty well. It got tremendous wealth out of the soil in the South. Cotton was the most profitable product for the early decades of our country's history, produced by slaves. It was where the wealth of the United States really begins. But likewise, a growing population of immigrants fueling a successful capitalism, and all the time wages had to be risen uh, in order to keep the labor shortage problem solved, to keep people coming. And pretty soon these people, being working class people, formed trade unions and, and put pressure on the employer, and that also added to rising wages. So now we get to the 1970s, and now the story changes utterly and dramatically. And frankly, it's my experience as an American professor that what I'm about to explain is still not understood by the majority of Americans, even though it's their own history. In the 1970s, by the 1970s, the standard of living, as most Americans know, the standard of living of American working people was higher than that of working people anywhere else in the world. That's what this history of solving the labor shortage by raising wages to bring waves of immigrants, uh, that's what it had produced very well-paid American workers.
but their employers in the 1970s, the capitalists, the people who own and operate the bulk of the business, particularly the big business in America, they weren't so, so thrilled about high wages. They couldn't do much about it because here they were in the United States. They had to solve that labor shortage problem. They had to make peace with their workers, and so they had to raise wages. But in the Although they tried to break up those unions at the end of the war and they forward. Did, just they did just to they add could. that, they did everything they could before that to break the workers. <laughs> Absolutely, but they also had no choice right. in the end <laughs> but to make it worthwhile for more folks to come here. Otherwise, the engine of American economic well-being would have ground to a halt. Anyway, in the 1970s, the, the big businesses of America made a fateful decision. They looked around and they said, this is crazy. We pay Americans way more money than is paid to working people elsewhere in the world. And now, by the 1970s, we had some big new inventions. One was the jet engine that allowed you to get to any corner of our planet in a matter of hours. And the second one was modern telecommunications that allowed a businessman or woman, a capitalist in Cincinnati or Chicago or Boston, to be able to see, to monitor, to measure what was going on in a factory, an office, or a store 10,000 miles away as easily in the past they had gone across the street to look at their facilities and how they were working. And so the capitalists of America made a decision. And, and I'm going to make this stark because it's so important that Americans get it. Yes, please do. They basically it's... decided to kiss us all goodbye. <laughs> they basically made the decision to abandon the United States. They had to, in their minds, find a more profitable place to do business and they didn't want to pay the wages that they had had no choice really but to pay uh, in the preceding 150 years, roughly from the 1820s to the 1970s. And so one by one, they left. And they went to China or to India or to Brazil or to countless other countries, which everyone listening to me knows because you've noticed the labels on your clothing, you've noticed the labels on your appliances, you've noticed that the names of the automobile companies you buy from has gone from the Anglo-Saxon to the Japanese to the Korean and so on. And I think that has to sink in as the enormous revolution uh, in modern capitalism that it is. Basically, again, to make a complex story understandable. Hundreds of millions of people in places like China, the most populous country on this planet, India, the second most populous, Brazil, an enormous country, those workers had largely been outside of the frame of the capitalist world. They were brought in in the 1970s. They were brought in by capitalists going to where they were in the Bain, although there was also some immigration bringing those workers here. But mostly it was American companies going abroad. And what that did was mean in a blunt way 
that American workers were suddenly being laid off. They were being told there were no more job increases for them, no more wage increases. The real wage in America has not gone up uh, for 40 years. If you adjust the money you get as an average worker in America today for the prices you pay, what you can afford to buy with your wage today is about what it was in 1978. And the reason that has happened, the reason that the only way the American standard of living was able for a while to rise was because wages didn't go up, but the indebtedness of the American worker did. We borrowed because our wages went nowhere anymore. And in 2008, we hit the inevitable stone wall. You cannot keep borrowing more money if your underlying wage is not going up and therefore will not be able to pay to cover the cost of the debts you're running up. That's why we collapsed as a capitalism in 2008 and why we have not yet been able for most of us to recover from that because we're at a kind of turning point. Capitalism has moved on. Let me give you the starkest example I can. Over the last 20 years, wages in China, real wages of Chinese workers, have tripled. Over the same period of time, there's been no increase in wages of workers in the United States. You could not have a starker explanation for the deep unhappiness, anxiety, sense of failure, sense of disappointment, anger, all of the things we see in the presidential election, on the streets of this country, in the epidemic of lethal overdose of drugs, of all the things that are surrounding us, these have to do with a capitalism that decided in the 1970s to abandon not only the United States, the same is true of Western Europe and of Japan, the places where capitalism in a sense was born, where it grew over the last couple of centuries, where it found its footing. It has now decided there are, for them, for those companies, greener pastures to be found elsewhere where the wages are low. And they've now, done very well in the last yes. 40 years. They've yes, made, they have. Uh, Richard, I, wanna, I just want to interject profit. because I think you can only be with us five more minutes. Is that correct? Right. Yes, but I, I, I wanted to get the flavor of this dramatic oh, shift. Absolutely. Um, what I want to uh, bring up now, because you only have a few more minutes with us, is right. it's exactly what you're talking about. This is what you're seeing in the presidential election. But the way that American workers are being riled up is to fight one another. You know, let us fight the undocumented workers who are doing the work that no one else wants to do. Let's fight the immigrants. Let's fight the black people. Let's fight, every, you know, let's all this internecine. Let's fight one another. And let's fight the other workers out, you know, in the world who, by the way, are not, um, they may be doing well on some level, but they have incredible air pollution now. They have incredible climate issues. They have horrible pollution of their waters and new kinds of industrial diseases because capital really doesn't care what it does to the people 
when they are employing them. And what I'd like to ask you, your opinion before you have to leave, because I, I did want you to give that exposition. It was so excellent. It's like, what alternatives do American workers have other than slitting each other's throats and going after the throats of the poor workers around the world who are also struggling? Well, I think if they understand, if the American working class can understand what happened and why it happened and who made the key decisions, then I think it's basically inevitable where they're going to end up, which is not beating each other up or yelling at the immigrant who, after all, is trying to better his or her life exactly the way the vast majority of Americans, or at least of white Americans, have done for 200 years. They would understand that if you allow basic decisions of economics to be made by a relatively tiny minority of people, the owners, the boards of directors of uh, the top 2,000 corporations in America, you can't really be surprised to discover that these folks make decisions that serve them, that serve their wealth, that serve their interests, and not those of the rest of us. If you want an economic system to serve the people, you've got to put the people in charge. We keep acting in this strange way as Americans, imagining that by leaving the control, the ownership of business enterprises in the hands of a tiny number of large shareholders, you know, 75% of shares in this, in this country are owned by 1% of the shareholders, if we keep allowing that to exist and continue, we're going to have the kinds of decisions made of the sort I've just summarized. So where do we go? I think the answer is clear. We have to finally bring democracy to the decision-making that governs the production of goods and services. If all the people get together, enterprise by enterprise, factory by factory, store by store, office by office, and collectively in open democratic decision-making, one person, one vote, and coordinate their decisions with those of the communities in which they are located, you would never have seen the exodus of American business. Suppose a company, just a simple example, suppose a company says to itself, a typical capitalist country, a company, wow, we can close our factory in Cincinnati and move it to Shanghai. Oh, we will make much more profits. And so they do. Now imagine instead that the 300 workers in that company have a meeting and they discuss whether they should move to China. Well, we know the answer. They're not going to do that. They're Americans. They were born here. They care about themselves, their families, their neighbors, their community. They're not going to destroy themselves the way we have been destroyed. If you put them in the decision-making role, we would never be in the dilemmas that we find ourselves now. To make enterprises run democratically which is something you would have imagined we did at the beginning of our country's history, not now after 200 years, given the stated commitment to democracy we keep announcing to each other. If we had done that, we would not be in the kind of dilemma we are now. And that's, the, for me, the biggest issue is to confront 
that we cannot continue to have an economic system owned and operated by a tiny number of people and then wonder to ourselves that their decisions might be good for them but aren't for the rest of us. That, that is, is so true. That is so true. a reasonable way to think. And, you know, the other thing that I would just like to throw out uh, is that when American workers begin to realize that the workers overseas are just people like themselves, and we start to unite to insist that people overseas start having better working conditions and health protection, it evens things out. You know, I think that's one of the weaknesses that we've had, that we ourselves as workers have been very self-centered. And we only want to fight for ourselves. And I believe that when we fight for everyone, that is the best way to fight for ourselves. So, Richard, do you have to go right now? I really do, but I would be glad to rearrange and have another interview or discussion with you in the future. These are such important issues. They certainly are, and I would love to have you come back because there's a lot more to talk about. So, Professor Richard Wolf, thank you so much for joining us, and God bless. Yes, thank, thank you, you so and much. Good luck to you on your program, and I look forward to our next time to continue the conversation. Right, let's sock it to him. <laughs> <laughs> be great to see you again. Okay, well, guys, out there in our audience... We hope some of you are, like, hanging onto your phones. James, would you like to give out the phone number? Yes. Please call us at 1-866-472-5788. So please call us with your question or comment at 1-866-472-5788. So I would like to start talking about this topic of what it's like to live inside the beast. And uh, I want to talk about it from a different angle than we were just discussing with Richard, which is, you know, we've, we grow up in a society which is based on capitalist values. They're not Western values. They're capitalist values. Now, you know, you, you have this value that money is really important and that that gives you status and prestige and that earning a living and earning as much as you can is what's really important. For example, that is one of the values. And making as much money at the expense of others, unfortunately, seems to be part of those capitalist values. So what happens to you when you're growing up? What kind of society are you looking at? Are you looking at a society where everybody is getting together to help each other? Or are you looking at a society where people are uh, cutting each other's throats to get the better job, to get the higher pay. I mean, it is so shameful, I mean, to see workers fighting each other to get ahead instead of supporting each other. And it's not just in the U.S. and outside the U.S. It's also even just among ourselves. We compete for our resources. Wow, we have a lot of callers on the line. So I'm glad that I got that out because I'd like to start out with Lizzie from San Diego. Welcome, Lizzie. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I love this topic in the show. Um, so one of the questions, I don't know if you can, this is a general question for the professor too, but um, how can we in general change uh, corporations, companies that are ruled by, you know, 1% or something to back to the people who work for the company? Well, that's... Everybody coming together? 
well, that is a different question, of course, than the one we're asking about what's it like to live here, but it's a very good question. And we oh, did I, have a I show. I wasn't able to hear that. I'm sorry. I was, when I was oh, calling the, in. Oh, that's okay. That, uh, that is one of the things we've been talking about is cooperatives. So many companies that were teetering and tottering, uh, actually the workers got together and took over. And uh, when they took them over, they didn't ship those uh, factories overseas. And the whole idea of cooperatives is that sometimes it's everybody owns a piece, sometimes it shares, sometimes it's joint management. And we have started talking about this in some of our shows, and we are going to continue talking about that because that's such a very good question. Now, is General Motors or DuPont or Monsanto or any of these big companies, are they going to suddenly say, Oh, it's okay. You can have it. No, they're not going to do it. It's, you know, it's a fight to the death because they already know what the situation is. They know how they get their higher profits is by keeping wages down. And they have an institutionalized um, a dis, um, interest, a different interest than the workers themselves. So it's up to us. We're going to have to create cooperatives. We're going to have to create a culture of cooperation. We're going to have to overcome this silly idea that it's un-American to be cooperative. We had a show on the potluck revolution, and, and uh, we were talking about the history of cooperatives in the United States. There isn't anything un-American about it. It's just uncapitalist. So that's a first step, is for us to start cooperating. And, and not only in the economic field, Lizzie, but also for us to shift our consciousness to thinking in terms of cooperation with one another instead of competing with each other, whether it's for a man or, uh, you know, or an award or a scholarship. It's like, how do we level the playing field for everyone in the U.S.? So, by, the way, by the way, I'd like to add one more thing. Yeah. And that is there are companies emerging that are of a cooperative employee-owned nature. Uh, for example, there's uh, Winco and Publix that uh, compete directly with Walmart. And mm-hmm. because they're employee-owned, they, gener- they plow the profits back into the employees and they have lower prices than Walmart. And so we can support companies like that that are more employee-owned and cooperative in nature. And I think that will bring more and more pressure to bear for more and more companies to be like that. Very good point. Every one of us, even if we can't be in a co-op, can support that cooperation. Thanks for your Mm -hmm. call, Lizzie. We have more callers, so we're going to move on. But that also requires for us to recognize that we are raised with a certain context and a certain consciousness. But that's not, quote, normal or human. It's just what we were trained in. So next we have Helen from Fallbrook. Hi. You know, it's kind of embarrassing for me to to talk about the topic of what was it like to grow up here. You know, I'm 66, and I should have been aware of this flight of high-paying or, you know, well-paying labor jobs, and I was, but I don't think I ever really... Uh, cared about it the way I should have cared about it in the past until the past, you know, few years. And I hope that there is an awakening in our country of caring about each other so that the kind of apathy that I represented is at an end and we can do something about it. 
And I, I know yeah. I'm not alone in that, or something would have happened sooner. Oh, I like I love what you're saying, Helen. It's so important because when we uh, fell into the last great recession, well, we all of a sudden discovered that it doesn't really work when workers don't have income. In fact, we're supposedly out of the recession now, but workers still don't have enough income. And we're not even talking about black workers. The level of poverty among minority communities, uh, you know, is staggering. But there are there is a lot of poverty among white workers as well. And so we have two things happening. We have the depression of all of our wages at the same time as we have awakening minorities who are insisting upon their rights. But where is the pie that we're supposed to share? But when we came out of this great recession and there wasn't really an increase in income for American workers for the reasons that Professor Wolf was talking about and a number of other reasons that we really haven't gotten time to get into today, that has slowed down our economic recovery. It's really obvious. If you don't have the money, if nobody has the money to buy the goods, it doesn't matter how cheaply you make them. <laughs> so we're all being impacted by it. So it isn't just a moral issue, Helen. It's, it's, it's a reality issue that your life, the value of your home, uh, the economy, the vibrancy or the lack of vibrancy of the economy that you live in, your ability to make a living is actually in, tremendously impacted by the wages of people who have to buy whatever you produce. I completely agree with that. And being, I'm a psychotherapist by trade, and I used to have a, a practice based almost all on cash payments. And after the recession, that's no longer true. It's almost all through insurance because nobody has the money anymore. Isn't that incredible? Well, thank you so much for your call. That, that's so, such an important piece. Thank you. And now you. We, we have Todd in San Diego. Hi, Beth and James. What a great show. That was really uh, eye-opening and ear-opening. <laughs> I loved it, too. <laughs> I was born in 1964, so, you know, I was about 10 years old when this whole shift was taking place, so... I was clueless. I mean, not completely clueless, but I, I feel in a way like Helen embarrassed. You know, I was just looking out to make it for myself and my family. Yeah. I think that's a major problem in this country, and it's so ingrained into us. And so that's what it was like to grow up in this country was to be um, kind of, uh, I'm not sure what the word is, but like fed this line and everywhere, you know, that... Um, that capitalism is the answer. It's, you know, the answer, but it's the answer to the ego is what I, you know, I'm learning, but that it was, it's the answer to your, you know, upward mobility, you having a big house, the American dream. I mean, it just, I can see how much it was just pushed and fed and with, you know, the, um, in, in so many different ways, you know, that's right. And, so, when you grow uh, up, and unquestioned, that, you know, yes, and that's yes. what I'm really just seeing now is like how unquestioned all these in myself and everyone that I related to and talked to. That's um, right. On a more you, personal level, you know, I lived in Los Angeles. My parents were divorced and I drove across the city and went through the hood, you know, the neighborhoods where the african-americans lived and stuff and i saw the contrast between us driving you know my dad driving us in his cadillac through you know fairfax area 
which was uh, a not fair. Anyway, I don't want to go too long because I know you have a lot more callers, but yeah. I could see and feel the pain of the people in those kind of depressed areas. Yeah. You know, and, and and knew that something was not right about it, but I didn't know what to say or anything. I could just feel it, you know. Yes. Oh, thank you. I think what you're talking about is an insular existence that we are raised in an insular way in a capitalist economy, which is dog eat dog. Think about yourself and yeah. never think about anybody else as though they were not connected. So right. that's what really comes up for me around what you're sharing. And, you know, the good old days when we had these great manufacturing jobs and all that, they weren't good for women. They weren't good for blacks. Yeah. They weren't good for me, and, and they weren't even good for white men. We've, I've talked about this before because I know what the good old days were like, having lived through them. Uh, they were not good, and yet there were at least, you know, you had some income coming in, but there was so much inequality. Uh, you know, that, that little pie, piece of the pie that the capitalists left the workers was not evenly divided among ourselves, which created so much conflict among us, which made it difficult and still makes it difficult for us to come together because we're still fighting for a shrinking pie. Right. So thank you so much for that call. You're welcome. And, and next we have Christine in San Diego. Hello, on the Christine. whole insular comment. Hello. Hello, Christine, our producer. Yay. Yay, Christine. I was so excited about this topic, and then I got on all these calls, and I can only join like 10 minutes ago. But oh. I heard you mention the question of, you know, what's it like to grow up in this kind of capitalist society? Yeah. And um, one thing I did want to mention before, I want to share something very personal, but um, is that one of the clients that we have is a major car company, and they're finding that this is the first year, finally, that the millennials are buying cars um, because there's just been this whole trend in that entire generation that they prefer, prefer to, like, take Uber. It's called the sharing economy. They prefer to rent versus own. Um, maybe because they don't have the money. I don't know. But I think there's also a cultural thing about, like, it's not all about just having a bunch of stuff, which I hope is, hope is a sign. Um, so the the piece that I was going to talk about, though, is um, I think Todd just mentioned 1974 being a pivotal time when jobs were going away yeah. and things were changing. And I was three, so I was three years old and um, formulating my strategy for life, for my existence. And I can see that it was all based on preserving, protecting, and increasing my value, which is a very egoic, capitalist way, I think, of looking yeah. at the world. Yeah. And I had to do it in a way that was not um, obtrusive to others because I, you know, being a half Japanese, a half-breed child, um, you know, a lot of those jobs are going to Asian countries, right? Yeah. So I had to create this, whatever, my strategies for success in a way that wouldn't uh, draw undue negative attention. Mm. And I can just see myself like, you know, three years old, already a box. And I can see that, you know, I'll just be good. I'll be good. That's kind of vague. But I will, you know, get good grades. I've learned that I was intelligent. But the other weird thing is, and this is probably reading a lot of literature too, is I would remain a virgin for as long as possible. (laughs) Okay. And what was and, that going to do for you? Well, it's a uh, commodity, I guess. 
I read much too much Victorian literature. Um, but w- I'm saying that that wasn't like my main strategy in life. I'm just saying that I organized myself to anything that I thought that I had a value to preserve and protect it. Mm-hmm. And it very and it very much limited the way I engaged with the world. And then if you're also trying to be someone that doesn't upset people by your very existence because you look somewhat Asian, yeah, then I don't have the freedom to speak up and speak my mind and be vocal. Um, you know, yes, yes. You know, that is so true, Christine. What you're reminding me of is something that always shocked me was that people went to school to figure out how to make money. They didn't go to school to learn. And it's the same thing that you're talking about. It's the commoditization of everything that happens in the capitalist world. I mean, music is about making money. Sports is about making money. Sex is about making money. Uh, Everything is about making money. And what else can you do? Because we live in a society where... There really is no social network. You know, one of the things that I had thought about talking about today, but, we're, we, you know, there's so much to talk about. Uh, and I hope you can have a chance to go back and listen to the podcast because we've had a, a great show so far. Oh, you, you know I will. <laughs> I know you will. Um, is that, I can't remember what I was going to say. Oh, my God. You're saying one of the things that was in the podcast, it's all about commoditization and... Everything is to make money. And I did study to make money, you know. I wanted a good job. Now, how my parents let me be an English major, I have no idea. But, you know, I knew there were some jobs at the end of that line. So it was all, and it was building my career. And I can remember being like 22 years old, maybe 23, wondering when I was going to hit six figures because that was a goal. Oh, no. Oh, I can't believe it. Yes. I mean, no, I can't. But it's just hard for me to comprehend because, you know, when I was coming up, it wasn't that it was different, except that I was different. It was like, how am I going to overthrow this capitalist system? (laughs) That's what I was thinking about. So I studied history to try to figure it out. But uh, I love your comments. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for calling. And we we do have a couple more people. So I do want it. But thanks so much for your call. And the next person we have is Chris from Vista. Hi, Beth and James. Thanks so much for having the show. It's amazing. Great. Um, got me all fired up again, the recovering <laughs> capitalist that I am. <laughs> I, think that, I think that I am a person who, um, you know, recently woke up to, to the obvious white privileged existence that I have had. Yeah. And early 50s, grew up, you know, comfortable middle class, country club, private school, the whole bit. I majored in economics, totally went to school to figure out how to make money. There's no other reason to do it. <laughs> and, you know, there's no joy in life. Right. There's no, there's no joy in life. Like, I never, like, I played tennis to win, you know, and to get on the varsity team if I could. Like, I just, I, I think this is one of the saddest, you know, not, not one of these saddest. This is a sad outcome of capitalism that we're not, we don't learn how to enjoy life and how to do things for pleasure and how to relax in each other's company and um, connect to others as human beings, you know, and create a sense of community. You know, we're always so thinking about the cost-benefit analysis and 
putting ourselves at the end of that analysis, not each other or not the well-being of our community or our world. Yeah. Yes. And I, you know, I've had an awakening because of your shows and working with you, and it's been amazing, but it's also left me feeling really, really constantly conflicted. Mm. Because you, I, I'm in the insurance industry, and like you can't walk around screaming at everyone. You're all capitalism, we're fucked up. Not if you want a paycheck. I still have to pay my bills. I know. So, Actually, you know, you just, I'd love to hear what you have to say about that. Well, you just reminded me of what came to me when Christine was talking that I completely forgot, which is that we have no safety net. And I don't blame anybody for being as nuts as they are about always thinking about money because. You know, at one point you point you had extended families. Now people move away. You know, we've gone from apartment buildings to the ticky-tacky little houses that are, everybody is separated. And by the way, I love being in a house. Don't misunderstand me. But it's, you know, you don't have the family, the extended family. You don't necessarily have neighbors. Everybody's on their own. And, you know, it was, in some ways, it was worse before because... Uh, before the uh, the the Great Depression and Franklin Roosevelt and the Democrats, there was no Social Security. There was no uh, unemployment insurance. You know, th- there was nothing. Uh, there was so much. There was so much insecurity there. So it's a different kind of insecurity. When I was growing up, if you wanted to be secure, you went to work for the post office, <laughs> or you got a job at General Motors and you planned on staying there for thirty years. But now you have to plan on having four careers. Uh, everything is, you know, pensions have gone under. Uh, people are more and more frantic. There isn't that much of a social network. And, and also, the, the, uh, on these free enterprise, uh, you know, heroes who are trying to cut away whatever uh, network there is of security. Mm-hmm. And so h- how can you blame... I, you know, I don't blame people, but I love what you're saying because we need to wake up of how this poisons our souls and ruins our lives. So I really want to thank you for that great uh, call and comment, Chris. And now okay. we, we're, we have to move, uh, we want to move to Tracy in Phoenix. Tracy. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi. Yeah, I think um, my comments sort of echo some of what other people have shared in terms of seeing capitalism as the status quo and accepting that. I was born in the mid-1970s, so the system that uh, Professor Wolf was describing has been in place my whole life. And I'm noticing how I don't question it. Like, we, there was an article recently about the, you know, 62 wealthiest people own half the world's riches. And when I heard that, I just thought, yeah, that's how it is. <laughs> like, <laughs> right, right. Other, people, other people are totally outraged. Like, this is crazy. And I mean, I didn't even think to be outraged. I just thought, yeah, that's the way it is. You know, I grew up like middle class and, you know, definitely there's always going to be wealthy people and there's going to be poor people. And you just try not to, you know, you, you try not to be poor is how I grew up. And right, so that, right. I, what's that? I said, right, right. Of course. Yeah. Of course, and I'd like to throw in something about this illusion of the middle class. You know, the middle class is really the working class. And the working class who, that has a job, I mean, if, you're, if your parent or your was a worker, a teacher, 
um, a, a person who was in the post office, a, uh, a supervisor in a little company, uh, a clerk. These are all working class people. This whole baloney about middle class was to stop people from realizing they were being ripped off by the people who owned everything. It's, the, right. the, it's not about, oh, yeah, you're, that means that your parents, may, maybe you meant that they have a certain standard of living. They weren't impoverished. But they right. were not middle class. They had the same relationship to the companies that they're working for as anybody else. And that's one of those illusions that needs to be broken. Oh, my goodness, I can't believe it. Uh, uh, Irene, we have one second for you. Thank you, Tracy. So glad you called. Thank you. Irene from San Diego, are you still there? Nope. Okay. Oh, yes. Okay. We only have like 30 30 seconds. seconds. Yeah. Okay. I just am aware of the psychological effect of capitalism, hierarchy. So rather than seeing the way to get ahead was to learn something valuable and contribute, it was to get in with whoever has the power and, you know, suck up to that person and then you'll be valuable. Oh, so that is a great point. Effect. That is a great point. And the way to get ahead is not to raise everybody, but to raise yourself so you can get to the top of the hierarchy instead of raising everybody. Thanks so much for the call. Gotta go. James, tell us what we're doing next week. Next week, the rap revolution revelation. Let the phenomenal rap revolution. Could you say that again? The rap revolution revelation. That sounds like a rap line right there. Rap revolution revelation, yes. Yeah. Let the phenomenal rap artist Prince EA smash any stereotypes you've got left. Uh, Beth and I both talked about how when we first thought, heard rap, we were hoping it would go out of passion. But now we realize that rap has produced some important voices speaking the truth, waking us up and turning people's heads around. So tune into the show to hear positive rapper Prince EA, who reveals what's with the name, what's his background, how rap turned his life around and more. For those who haven't heard of Prince EA, he's a phenomenon, a super conscious, positive rapper with a love for all of us and a keen eye for our nonsense. And he has millions of followers. If you didn't hear his earlier interview with Beth, we're bringing it up to you again, along with the latest news of the inner revolution. This show will be guest hosted by the charming Christine Benton, who is relieving James and Beth as they briefly disappear into the forest, far from the internet. Our regular hosts will be back next week, but for now, tune into this show. You'll be happy to meet this young man. Now for a final word. Yes, the next week after next week. So, oh, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been such an exciting show. I feel all revved up myself. I think Chris said it. I love it. I feel so angry about how we have been brainwashed into not even fighting for our own self-interest, much less for our collective interest. And I know to my toes that those who are on top of this hierarchy, even though they've got all the money, it doesn't make them happy. It doesn't make them well. It, it, it's a sick It creates a sickness, a soul sickness in everybody in our society. I want to see a change, and I hope together we can make that change happen. So you continue listening to Interrevolutionary Radio and pass this show on. God bless, and see you soon.
Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.